It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Oh, could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in the beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Oh, could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? Hey, neighbor. Well, all right, got through the hard part. <laughs> it's impossible for many of us to hear the word neighbor and not hear that song running through our heads. And I can pretty much guarantee you're going to hear that song and you're running through your head the rest of this day, okay? <laughs> for over 30 years, Mr. Rogers welcomed children into his neighborhood to meet the people who were a part of his everyday life, like Mr. McFeely, the friendly postman. He taught children that neighbors like each other just the way they are. That neighbors are kind to each other, that they help each other, that they talk to each other about their thoughts and feelings. Can you say feelings? <laughs> Mr. Rogers didn't just talk about being a good neighbor, he was a neighbor to millions and millions of children and their grateful parents who couldn't help but eavesdrop on this kind man who told their children that they were loved and special and had something to offer the world. And Mr. Rogers went off the air back in 2003, but surprisingly, he's making a comeback. There's a lot of hype about a documentary coming out in just a couple of weeks to mark the 50th anniversary of the debut of his show back in 1968. And right behind it is coming a major motion picture starring none other than Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. And for the children who grew up watching him, Mr. Rogers' voice and presence continues to bring a sense of calm to their soul, a sense of hopefulness about the world around them. I was actually talking just recently with a millennial who told me that sometimes he pulls up YouTube clips of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and lets it play silently on his computer while he works on other things. It just brings a sense of calm. So suddenly, Mr. Rogers is cool again, which is not how I feel in this sweater and sneaker combination right now, okay? All this to say, we could not think of a better champion for this new series that we're calling Neighbor. Now, we chose that one-word title for a variety of reasons. It's got layers of meaning. Neighbor is both individual and collective. You are a neighbor, and you have neighbors. Neighbor is a noun and a verb. Neighbor is something you are and neighbor is something that you do. Neighbor is specific. Chances are you're thinking of some names and faces of neighbors right now. But neighbor is also global. 
anyone could be your neighbor. But the most important reason we chose that word is because it was a very important word to Jesus, as we're going to find out. So after many months of exploring brokenness and unbrokenness in our lives and world, we're going to, I'd like to remind you of our, our ministry theme for this church year. It's a theme that we've de described as being and going with Jesus. Now, if you don't remember that, don't feel bad. The staff didn't remember it either. But we actually introduced it back in September. This is a year of mobilization in which we're inspiring and challenging and teaching ourselves to go out into the world to help people find and follow Jesus. And so we launched that effort back in September with a series we called The Divine Initiative, where we talked about joining God in his healing, redemptive, transformative work in the world. We followed Jesus as he trained the 12 disciples, as he taught them and us to grow as we go. We came back to it again in the wintertime with a series that we called Your Place in God's World. We spent some time in the book of Ephesians. We talked about knowing the who, what, where, when, and why of finding your go, your God-given mission in this world for this season of your life. But we left one question unanswered in that series. How? How do you go into the world and fulfill your mission on a daily basis, on a practical level? How do you answer God's call on your life? So that's what we're going to go after in this next series. We hope it's going to be a practical series, a down-to-earth series, and a little bit more fun than brokenness, okay? So we're going to spend six weeks learning why the word neighbor was so important to Jesus and why it's so important to us and to our world today. So let's go right to Jesus' most direct statement on the subject. It's found in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was one of the first followers of Jesus. And he was the first one to actually collect some of the stories and sayings of Jesus and put them together in a book that we call the Gospel of Mark. So let's jump into Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 29. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this conversation takes place later in Jesus' ministry. By this time, he has stirred up so much controversy that the religious leaders are trying to trap him into some heretical, treasonous statement that can warrant his arrest. But Jesus is way smarter than they are. He confounds them and embarrasses them at just about every turn. And one of those religious teachers is actually quite impressed with the way Jesus answers these questions. And so he poses a question of his own. Now we're told that this questioner was an expert in the law. Well, that makes him suspect on two accounts. He's religious and he's a lawyer. So <laughs> the religious part alone, okay? But the tone of his question is different from the other questions. This religious attorney asks a substantive question, and he seems to have a genuine interest in Jesus' answer. The question he asks was commonly debated among religious people. Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? Which one 
is the greatest? Well, it wasn't a simple question. For one thing, there were 613 commandments. So that's a lot to choose one. And remember, it's first century Judaism, so they are all about keeping all of these commandments. And it's, not, it's not only difficult to choose one, it's risky to choose one because you run the chance of letting people off the hook for the other 612. And so you'd better believe that people were leaning in, that they were listening closely to hear how Jesus would answer this question. And so here's what he says. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, this is interesting on a couple of levels. For one thing, the man asks Jesus for the most important commandment and Jesus responds with the most important confession. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that's strange, especially because it's a belief that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the actual question about the commandments. So why did Jesus begin his answer that way? The Lord is one. We'll come back to it in a minute. The more interesting thing and troublesome is that the man asks for one commandment, the most important one, and Jesus gives him two. Now that just doesn't work. If someone asks to name the greatest baseball team around, there's only one answer to that question. <laughs> two things can't be the most important. You have to choose one. And yet, Jesus refuses to choose one. So let's try to figure out what's going on here. The first part of his answer is that the most important commandment is to love God with your whole being, your heart and soul and mind and strength. Now they say that a good attorney never asks a question that they don't already know the answer to. And so I happen to believe that this man already had an answer in mind he was hoping and maybe expecting Jesus to give. And I think it was probably this answer. Because this was, after all, the first thing a, Jew, a devout Jew prayed every morning. It was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They began every day with that prayer. It was the first thing that parents were taught to teach their children in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Teach these things to your children. It's an expression or a reflection of the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It cuts through all the legalism of first century Judaism and gets to the heart of their faith, which is love for God. And so I think the lawyer was pleased but not surprised by Jesus' answer. What he was surprised by, I think, and what the crowd was surprised by is that Jesus didn't stop there. He gave another answer. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where did that come from? That's not in the Shema. That wasn't part of the catechism. There's only one place in the Old Testament scriptures where it explicitly says, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's a tiny little phrase, a half of a verse, tucked away in an obscure chapter of Leviticus. Leviticus. 
Not to mention, as we said before, Jesus, the, the man has asked for one commandment and Jesus offers two. So where's he going? What Jesus was saying here was that these two commands are actually one. The way God is one. So now we begin to see why Jesus began that way. Because the nature of God is one. The way of God is one. And the way of God is the way of love. Love for God and love for others. You cannot separate them. So it's not this and that, as if two are better than one. It's not this or that, as if you can choose loving God or loving your neighbor. It's this is that. Loving God is loving your neighbor, and loving your neighbor is loving God. In other words, you can't rightly and fully love God unless you are also loving your neighbor. Now, I'm going to say that again. You can't rightly or fully love God unless you are rightly and fully loving your neighbor. This is the most important commandment. And if you're not doing both, you're not doing either. Now, pause right there. Do we really get that? Do we believe in the truth of that? That if we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves, we're really not loving God? Has that sunk in? Someone has compared it to Jesus' answer to a door with two hinges. You can say, which is the most important hinge, the top hinge or the lower hinge? Well, you can't really choose one, can you? Because take one of them away and the door will immediately tilt and wobble and eventually not work anymore. Which is the most important hinge? The two of them. They have to work in tandem. And so it is with these two commandments. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, we could spend a long time exploring what it means to love God with your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we have done that, and we'll do that again. It's a very worthy question to go after. And it's a question that church people really love to go after. And we're pretty good at all the ways of loving God. For this series, we'd like to focus on that second question, loving our neighbor, because that's the one that catches us and the world by surprise. So let's look at that close, that phrase for just a moment and let's break it into its three parts. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, first of all, he doesn't say be nice to your neighbors. He doesn't say be good to your neighbors. He doesn't say wave to your neighbors as you drive through the neighborhood. He says love your neighbors. Love. I mean, that's a strong word. We, we reserve the word love for people and things that are close to our hearts, our families, our friends, moose tracks, ice cream, things like that that really matter. Are we supposed to love people just because they happen to live nearby or because we bump into them as we make our way through the day? That's a pretty big ask. Now, in case you are wondering, the Greek word used here is that word agape that describes sacrificial, unconditional 
love. Is that the kind of love you have for your neighbor? When was the last time I did something sacrificial for one of my neighbors? The Hebrew word behind it is the word ahava, which describes to act lovingly toward or to be loyal to. So there's both, both action and affection to this word love. Things we do and things we think and feel. Do you feel affection for the people on your block or the people you bump into on the train or the kids who sit near you with cla in class? Are you actively contributing to the happiness and well-being of the people you bump into every day? This is a big ask. So, love. Your neighbor. Now, who exactly does Jesus have in mind? Who is our neighbor? Is it just people who happen to live near us? Is it, is it anybody who crosses my path? Is it everybody in the whole world? I really puzzled over what's Je what is Jesus getting at. So I decided to go back to that original verse to find it in its original context in the Old Testament, the verse that Jesus quotes. And as I said, you find it tucked away in one of the least familiar books of the Bible, and the least fun, by the way, Leviticus chapter 19. Here's what we read. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now notice, it's not even the whole verse. It's just a phrase stuck on to the end. But according to this verse, our neighbors aren't just people who live near us. They're people with whom we might have had a dispute. People who might have treated us badly. People we might hold a grudge against or want to get even with. God wants us to love them too. But then I realized that this little phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, isn't just about that verse. It's about a whole stack of verses. It comes at the end of a long list of commands and a long list of people God wants us to love. So I went back and I worked my way through that list and it was eye-opening. So follow with me for a moment. Up to verse 10. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So when the Lord tells us to love our neighbors, he's thinking about the materially poor and about the immigrant and about the refugee and about the person literally on the margins of society. People we might not even see. Landowners didn't see the people gleaning in the fields after dark. People we might not even see but people we can love simply by thinking about them and stewarding our resources in ways that can bless them. Do not deceive each other. And so neighbor includes people we might relate to personally or professionally, people who we might try to put something over on or tell less than the truth about or misrepresent ourselves whether we're negotiating a business deal over the phone or whether we're talking face-to-face -face, or whether we're responding to someone on the internet. It's a lot of people. 
Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. So neighbors could include people we might cheat in a business transaction, on a school exam, in a church softball game. Who knows? Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Our neighbors include people who work for us in the office or around the house or as we make our way through the community. So neighbors ensure that the people who work with and around us are treated and paid and tipped fairly. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Neighbors are those who are differently abled than we are. People we might overlook or underestimate or feel uncomfortable with. To love those neighbors is to engage them in positive and constructive ways. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And so our neighbors include people of higher and lower economic status than us. People we might be tempted to resent because of their higher or lower status. Or people we might jump to conclusions about without having taken the time to really understand them and making a fair judgment. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life, for I am the Lord. Our neighbors include people near and far whose well-being may be affected by our actions, like by the products we buy, or by the way we treat the environment, or by the people or laws that we vote for or against. So when Jesus talks about loving our neighbors, he's talking about a whole lot of people. Not just people in geographic proximity, but people in social proximity, people in professional proximity, people even in virtual proximity. It's a lot of people. I was trying to wrestle this thing to the ground to come up with a definition of who my neighbor is. Now, Jesus will help us with that in another message later in the series. But this is what I came up with for now. And if you think you have a better way to define neighbor, let me know and we'll keep working on it. But this is what I have. My neighbor is any human being I have the opportunity to interact with. Any human being I have the opportunity to interact with. So yes, there's a sense in which neighbor includes a whole lot of people, near and far. But it's not everybody in the whole world because that's not practical. That's not actionable. It's people that I actually have an opportunity to interact with. So neighbor probably includes the people who live next door or across the hall. But it also might include the person who serves up my coffee or the stranger I'm sitting next to on the plane, or the customer you're negotiating with on the phone, or the factory worker in Bangladesh who's making my clothes, or the antagonist you're responding to on Twitter, or the child you're sponsoring overseas, or the person standing in the lobby who's waiting for someone to come strike up a conversation. Or the families in Texas whose names we may not know, whose grief we can't understand, 
but people for whom we can pray anyway. A lot of people. So love is both action and affection. Things we do, ways we think and feel. Our neighbors are anybody we have the opportunity to interact with. But how about this last phrase, as yourself. What does that mean? Now, it could mean we should treat people the way we want to be treated. Uh, another version of the golden rule, do unto others. And it could mean that. But another possibility, and I think a more accurate interpretation, is that what Jesus is saying is, love your neighbor because he or she is just like you. Love your neighbor because she's made in the image of God, like you. Love your neighbor because he's fallen short of the glory of God, like you. Love your neighbor because he's weird, like you. <laughs> Love your neighbor because sometimes he is beautiful, like you. Love your neighbor because she has the same hopes and fears and dreams and longings as you have, whether she lives across the street or across the ocean. In other words, we love our neighbors not because of their status, not because of what they might do for us, not because they've earned our love, not even because we want them to believe what we believe. We love our neighbors because they're human like us, because Christ died for them like he did for us, and because he asks us to love them the way he loves us. That's really all the reason we need. So that's how Jesus answers this attorney's question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And as I said, I don't think it was exactly the answer the attorney was expecting, but he was impressed. Look what he says. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wait a second. More important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices? This is first century Judaism. It was all about offerings and sacrifices, ceremonies and holy days. That's how you demonstrated your faith. Do you keep the Sabbath? Did you bring a worthy sacrifice? Are you doing all the religious things that people do? And this man is saying that Jesus is saying that loving your neighbor is just as important and maybe more important than all those things. It would be like today saying that loving your neighbor is more important to God than us attending church services and joining Bible studies and having devotions and observing communion. Really? This is a remarkable, radical statement that this man makes and that Jesus affirms. Because Jesus is impressed now. Look at what he says. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're right, he says to the man. Loving God and loving your neighbor is way more important than all that religious stuff. In fact, he says to this man, and to anyone who keeps this command to love God and love your neighbor, 
that you are not far from the kingdom of God, that you are not far from the greatest experience a human being can ever have, that you are about to experience life the way it was meant to be lived in a world that God had in mind. What Jesus is saying is that the highest and holiest thing a human being can do is to love God and love the people around him or her. Friends, do we believe that? I mean, do we get what Jesus is saying? This past week, someone shared a story with me about how he came to this realization. Uh, Dominic DeLuca is a part of our Foxborough congregation, and he's one of our worship leaders there. And he shared a story with me of an experience he had that awakened him to this truth we're talking about here today. And it happened to him on the Pan Mass Challenge some years ago. Let me share his story with you in his words. Dom writes, Years ago, my friend Mike and I decided to ride the Pan Mass Challenge. It's a 200-mile bike ride for cancer that begins on Saturday morning at 4.30 a.m. and ends 200 miles later in Provincetown on Sunday. On Friday night before the ride, there's always a rally. Now, as a worship leader, I believe I have a sort of spiritual antenna that tells me when something spiritual is happening. And several times at that rally, my antenna went off sometimes as loud as it's ever gone off. I kept waiting for the speaker to mention God or Jesus or faith or something spiritual, but it never happened. The next day on the ride, I sensed it again. At one point, there was a guy in a kilt playing bagpipes while 2,000 riders passed by. On any other day, I would have thought it odd, but today, he was one of many things that set my spiritual antenna off. All through the ride, there were families with cups of water and hoses greeting and cheering us as we rode by. They made us feel like heroes. On Sunday morning, I can remember riding next to a guy who'd been in the hospital tent the night before. He was still sick, but he told me that his pain was nothing compared to the pain of these cancer victims. He would ride no matter what. Shortly after that, I dropped back to be by myself, as much as you could with hundreds of riders. I remember it as if it was yesterday. I was almost yelling at God. What's with this, God? I feel you everywhere, but no one is acknowledging you. What's going on? I was somewhere between Bourne and Brewster on Route 6, and I had this thought appear in my head. It's as close to what I hear people say as the voice of God, and the thought was this. Dominic, you love the Lord your God with all your heart. They love their neighbor as themselves. You are both halfway there. I don't know how many miles I rode crying, thank God for sunglasses, but I still get teary-eyed just thinking about it. God changed my worldview. That day was one of the most spiritual, life-changing events I have ever had. What I have learned since that bike ride is that God is everywhere and can be found among all people. Loving my neighbors and serving them is just as much a part of my worship as singing our God or oceans. Friends, could it be that we are only halfway there as individuals, as a church? That we're really good at the loving God part? 
all the stuff that church people do, the worship services and the prayer meetings and the Bible studies and the courses and, and all those things that are wonderful and worthwhile and honoring to God. But it could be we're only halfway there, that we're really not understanding or practicing the second part about loving our neighbors, which Jesus says is just as important as the first part. And in fact, if we're not doing the second part, we're really not doing the first part. Do we get that? Do we believe that one of the highest and holiest things we can ever do is to love our neighbors. Are we ordering our lives that way? Are we planning our social calendars that way? Are we raising our children that way? Are we building our church that way? Here at Grace, friends, we are really good at doing church all the things that churches do, we do them well, and we do them with all our hearts, and we do them to the glory of God and to the good of the world. I, I know that. Are we just as good at being church, at bringing church out of these buildings and into the workplaces and the neighborhoods and the schools and all the places God sends us in the course of a day? What would happen if we did that? That's what this series is going to be about. Now, I was all set to finish with Mr. Rogers. Good old Mr. Rogers. But he got bumped by the most reverend Bishop Michael Curry. All right, yes. Anybody watch the royal wedding yesterday? In case you didn't see it, they held a wedding and church broke out. It was church. And a large part, it was because of the message that Bishop Michael Curry brought, an American and the first African-American bishop of the Episcopal Church. And there's no way I can recreate the moment, but just take my word for it. He brought it. In fact, don't take my word for it. Go YouTube it this afternoon, and you'll, you'll get it. He spoke about the power of love to redeem and to heal and to make the world new. And he asked us, he referenced this very same text we just talked about. And he asked us to imagine a world where love is the way. This unconditional, sacrificial, redemptive love. These are his words. When love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world ever again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay down our swords and shields down by the riverside to study war no more. When love is the way, there'll be plenty good room for all of God's children. Because when love is the way, we will actually treat each other well like we are actually family. Like God is the source of all of us. My brothers and sisters, that's a new heaven, a new earth, a new world, and a new human family. And he made it clear that this kind of love can only be found in God. That this love has been shown to us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, he brought the gospel. And the whole crazy world was taking it in. And I, I, I have to tell you, I, I don't know that I've ever felt as proud to be a Christ follower or, or felt as proud of a brother in Christ or a fellow preacher who 
brought the message with such courage and grace and winsomeness. It was a great moment. Well, Bishop Curry asked us to imagine a world in which love is the way. I'm going to ask us to imagine something a little more humble, but just as powerful. To imagine a church where love is the way. To imagine a church where the members really believe that the highest and the holiest and happiest thing they can ever do is to love God and love their neighbors. To imagine a church where every person who walks in the door is valued and welcomed and loved just the way they are. To imagine a church where every Monday the members scatter to schools and workplaces and neighborhoods with the intention of actively loving every person they have an opportunity to interact with. Imagine a church so kind, so generous, so helpful that the people who live around us say, I sure am glad they're in the neighborhood. Imagining that kind of church and world is what this series is going to be all about. As we learn from Jesus how to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these words, which perhaps are familiar to many of us. We have read and studied and repeated them many, many times. But Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit we might hear them fresh today. That we might be surprised at how relevant and pointed and practical and life-changing they can be for our own lives and those around us for our church and our city and our world. Lord, we invite you to speak into our lives in these weeks to come. And we ask you that even this week, you would begin opening our eyes and ears and hearts to the people we interact with every day, that we might love them the way you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.